So I, I guess I'll start off by asking, uh, did anyone play make-believe when they were a kid? Anyone have like certain scenarios, right? Okay, I had like five people raise their hands, so the rest of you are definitely lying, because everyone here has played make-believe at some point, I'm sure. Um, so one of my go-to scenarios, it's, it was pretty low-key, it was, it was just storming the beaches of Normandy during D-Day. Um, I don't know if some of you guys have watched Saving Private Ryan. This is that first scene, right, where you just have like a, a wave of troops, American troops, taking on Omaha Beach and trying to take on the Nazi bunkers. And like, they're like storming like through a, a hail of machine gun fire. And so that was my scenario, and I was, I was like 10, it was ridiculous. And my parents were like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> um, but when I played in that make-believe scenario, I never lost, right? I always would make it through the machine gun fire and mortar rounds, and I'd always be taking out and stacking Nazi bodies and I'd eventually come out with the Medal of Honor, right? That's, our make-believe scenarios always come out with us victorious. But actually, the reality of the D-Day invasion, June 6, 1944, was uh, it's pretty brutal. And the, uh, the first wave of soldiers, it was about 200 soldiers, it was called the suicide wave. Um, out of the 200 soldiers, about 90 died, and another 90 were wounded. So basically, it was a 90% casualty rate. And by the end of that first wave, only 20 people actually made it across the beach. Um, so you can see why it was called the suicide wave. But that's not in the back of my mind when I have that make-believe scenario. And I think a lot of us, when we become Christians, and we say that we are aligned with God, a God of the universe, who has created everything and is orchestrating everything, we tend to have this make-believe idea that defeat and suffering can never touch us once we come to Christ. The reality that we are going to read about in Psalm 44, it's actually very different from the make-believe scenarios that we like to create. Um, Psalm 44 talks a lot about victories, yes, that God has orchestrated for the Israelites, but Psalm 44 also talks about death and suffering and feeling like God is not anywhere near you in your darkest moments. And to have that reality in the back of our minds as Christians can be really sobering and really heavy, but uh, we need to wrestle with that as Christians. Uh, we need to be prepared for the days when we feel like we're at our lowest and we cry out to God and ask, where are you, God? So I'm going to read the psalm. It's Psalm 44, and I'm going to read the ESV version. Um, as, we, as we've been meditating on the psalms, the elder candidates and, and I... A lot of them have been rewriting the psalms. And I'm going to be, uh, I already talked about the first part of my psalm, which I rewrote um, and read out for you guys during the liturgy. And I'll probably give you guys the end of this psalm, a rewritten, um, but that'll come towards the end. But for now, we're going to stick in the ESV. Psalm 44. To the choir master, master a maskal of the sons of Korah. O oh God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us, what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You, with your own hand, drove out the nations, but them, speaking of the Israelites, you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them, again the Israelites, you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God, Ordain salvation for Jacob. 
Through you, we push down our foes. Through your name, we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God, we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Selah. And here it takes a turn. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoiled. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long, my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet, you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God, or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up, come to our help, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. God, would you uh, reveal yourself today? Would your Holy Spirit uh, work through the text and work through me uh, to not pull any punches, God, um, but to face the reality of the waves that can come crashing over our heads throughout our life and our walk with you, God? Amen. So um, I'll flesh out the context of Psalm 44 a little bit. <clears throat> so the story um, is really, or the story of this psalm starts with the Israelites as they are invading the promised land. God has given the Israelites an order that you are going to take the land of Canaan. And uh, going into these invasions, the Israelites are uh, terrified. Um, really, they have no business fighting the Canaanites. They're outnumbered. And they are outgunned in the sense that the Canaanites are far stronger and far fiercer and outnumber the Israelites. Um, in Numbers 13, the Israelites send some scouts into the land of Canaan to figure out what they're coming up against. And the Canaanites are described as giants in the land, right? I imagine a bunch of uh, uh, legions of LeBron James, right? Like 6'8", 250, like hulking menaces. And the, it says literally the Israelites feel like they're grasshoppers compared to these Canaanites. And the Canaanites are sneering at the Israelites and they're looking forward to this battle. They're like, we're gonna mop the floor with these guys. This is no contest. And God also says this is gonna be no contest. He comes back and he tells the Israelites, yes, they do outnumber you. And yes, they are stronger than you. But with my right hand, I am going to lead you into battle. So the Israelites are going into the promised land and they're coming up against um, pretty much every possible uh, obstacle that you can overcome. 
And all of the kingdoms in the, in the promised land have united against the Israelites. So it says that the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, it says in Joshua 9, that they have all created a treaty to unite against the Israelites and to destroy them. But God says, I will devote them, I will devote all of those forces to destruction. I will give them over to you, Israelites. And so when we look at the psalm in that context, um, when we look at the, there's really, broke, it's broken up into three parts. And so the first verses, uh, one through eight, it's a praise for some kind of past victory, right? So I'm imagining that the Israelites have entered the promised land. Um, and Joshua speaks of one of their first battles. It was against uh, the city of Jericho. And some of you might remember Sunday school stories where when the Israelites attacked Jericho, they marched around the city for their siege for about seven days. And on the seventh day, the Israelites blow their trumpets and the walls of Jericho come crashing down. Clearly, nothing of the Israelites did anything to win them that victory, right? It was all God. And so in verses one through eight, it feels like the psalmist is praising God for that kind of victory, where it was God that did all of the work and the Israelites are dancing and glorifying God for that. But then in verses 9 to 22, it speaks of a lament for some kind of defeat. It's unspecified in the psalm what exact uh, battle that they're talking about. But all we know, it's some gen general suffering that happens during this war and that the Israelites are getting crushed. And the Israelites, it says, are um, being mocked and humiliated by their enemies. And their dead are littering the ground everywhere. It talks of jackals, which jackals are a, um, they're like vultures where they eat um, carrion or dead bodies. And so these jackals are feasting on the Israelites. <clears throat> and the Israelites are looking to, heavens, to the heavens and they're crying out, weren't we just winning, God? We're like, weren't you just with us? How did this completely flip on us, on us? And why does it feel like everything that's around us is only death and there's no longer victory? Why did you abandon us, God? And then in verses 23 to 26, the Israelites cry for victory and deliverance. They make their requests to God and they say, wake up, you sleeping giant. We know you can restore us. Bring us the Messiah. Bring us the one who will lead us into battle. So uh, one of the first things I want to talk about when I, when I read this psalm, what comes to my head is the fact that rain falls on the wicked and the righteous alike. I think this psalm makes it clear in the first few verses, in verses 1 through 8, that the Israelites didn't bring anything to the fight, that it was God who won the battle, it was God's right arm, and that the Israelites' only job was to show up. In the same way, when we go into the second part of the psalm and it talks of the suffering, they continue to attribute the circumstances to God. It was only God who was responsible for their defeat. He is the one who was sovereign and was orchestrating everything. The psalmist keeps re repeating the phrase, you made us. He says, you made us turn back from our foe. You made us like sheep for the slaughter. You made us the taunt amongst our neighbors. And the psalmist is trying to rationalize and make sense of this in verses 17 and 18 when he says that all of this death and chaos has come upon us even when we didn't do anything against you, God. We never forgot you. We did everything you asked. We were a pleasing aroma to you. And the psalmist says, God, search my heart. The psalmist is justifying himself before God. He's saying, if you look in every corner and crevice of my soul, 
you'll see that I have never diverted from you. So why are we being defeated? Why is this happening to me? Um, So the Israelite narrator here is, he truly believes in his heart of hearts that he has not offended God. And I think some of us might read into the text a little bit too much here and say, uh, certainly the psalmist and the Israelites have some unrepentant sin or something that he doesn't know about. And that's the reason that God has turned his back on the Israelites. And that is true through many of the stories that we hear about the Israelites, right? There are moments when they do turn away from God and they do praise idols and they turn to the idols of the land. But it doesn't say that in this text. And I don't think we can read that into this text. We have to take the psalmist at his word when he says that the Israelites haven't done anything. We have to take him at his word when he says that the Israelites have been blameless, much like Job was blameless when God afflicted him. So how do we understand who suffers and who doesn't? So where does God draw the line in the sand when he determines who will be afflicted and who will be victorious? And I think the answer is kind of frustrating. And Job says it best. He says, we receive good from God and we also should receive evil. He's yielding to God when he's being afflicted. And I think when you become a follower of God, it's not a vaccine from pain as much as we want it to be. In fact, you're guaranteed to lose everything. No one makes it out of here alive as much as we want to persuade ourselves that we're going to live forever. We can't live in this make-believe world where just because you're a Christian, everything comes easy. I don't think the Bible ever promises that. Two things are certain in this life. You live long enough, you will bleed. And everything you own is either going to end up in a dump or a garage sale. And that's, that's straight from Ecclesiastes 12. That's the Bible telling us that. So from the day you're born, the timer starts, and it's counting down to your death. And that's really depressing. But it's news that I have to tell you, and I think that's what this psalm is telling us. But there's two things that we can take comfort in. And the first is that God knows what it feels like to have a countdown to death. Right? The day that Jesus was born, the clock started, and he was on the road to Calvary. You can even trace it back further. If God is sovereign and knows everything, then we can know that when he created the Garden of Eden and when he created mankind, he started the timer. And he knew that he was going down the road of Calvary from day one of creation. We can take comfort knowing that God is also acquainted with the sorrow that comes with the certainty of death. The second thing that we can take comfort in is that God promises us that our suffering is meaningful, that there is purpose behind it. In Romans 5.5, Paul says that our suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And this hope is in the guarantee that God will make all things right. And you may not experience it in this life, unfortunately. But the promise does remain that God will redeem your suffering and will make things right. And I take hope in what Paul says because of the things that Paul has been through. I don't think there's anyone who understands hope in the context of suffering better than Paul. His resume just speaks for itself. He was put in jail, and what did he do? He ministered to the jailers. He was bit by a venomous snake, 
literally shakes it off. He's lost at sea and shipwrecked. He says, let's have a picnic. We should eat. He's sent to Rome to stand trial. And he says, perfect. This was part of my mission plan. I wanted to go to Rome. So I'll take Paul at his word when he quotes Psalm 44 in Romans 8. And he says that who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written? And here he's quoting Psalm 44, 22. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And Paul's using Psalm 44 to say, do you love God? Because if you do, prepare to suffer for his sake. Paul's saying that he would endure every form of torture that, he, that anyone can throw at him and his joy cannot be taken from him. That he's anchored to hope, to the promise that Jesus Christ loves him and that Jesus Christ won't be away from him. I think Paul is living out James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4 perfectly, which says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So a second thing that I meditated on as I was reading this psalm was, how can I communicate with God during times of suffering? What does the psalm teach us about communicating with God? So if you look in verse 9 and 10, it says, But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoil. So the, the victory parades are gone, right? There's literal stench of death in the air. And the psalmist is beginning to weep and lament. He's saying, where are you, God? Everything is falling apart. You have rejected us. And I want you to really notice this because in the first part of the psalm, when things were going great, the psalmist is attributing and giving everything to God. He's saying, he's pointing upwards and he's saying, this is all you, God. And when he stumbles and enters into a time of defeat and suffering, his gaze never, never strays away from God. He continues to communicate with God. I think that's so important that in the moments when we don't trust God and in the moments when we are suffering, in the moments when we want to run away the most, that we need to stay. I think the psalmist is telling us here, would you stay? When you're anxious and you're furious and you're confused at God, don't break your gaze. He can handle your emotions. God is patient. He's long-suffering, and he's ready to engage with you. And I love that the psalmist, he gets super personal in verse 12. He says, you have sold your people for a trifle. He's saying, do we mean nothing to you, God? God, it feels like you are a bully with a magnifying glass destroying us on the anthill. When, not if, but when, you oppose God's will, I would plead with you not to ignore him, not to disengage. Don't go silent. Don't shut him out. Would we do as the psalmist does by making it personal? Question God. Ask him, can you explain? Can you make your plan clear to me? Because it doesn't make sense to me. And I don't think there's any point in lying. Because the psalmist says that 
the Lord knows every part of our hearts, that he can search us. So if the Lord can search us, what is the point in lying and trying to say everything is fine? What's the point of sweeping it under the rug? I think in some ways, times when you question God's will and times when you wrestle with him is when he is most alive to you. But I would ask that when you are wrestling with him and when you are asking him those questions, that you also leave room for God to answer. Because he can answer in a number of ways. I think there's three main ways that I think of when he responds to us. The first being the Holy Spirit, second being scripture, and the third being community. And I think when God responds to us and we let him respond to us and we listen to what he has to say, that we begin to become like a tree planted by streams of water, as it says in Psalms 1. That we become mature Christians that can't be toppled over. When the waves come, that we cling to the rock of ages when the storms are coming. So the third thing that I want to wrestle with uh, from this psalm is how does God communicate to us during suffering? And I already said it. So it was uh, scripture, it was Holy Spirit, and it was community. But I really want to emphasize community here, actually. Because I think the context of this psalm, uh, it says that it's a masculine, which uh, we don't know the exact definition, but we know it's some kind of liturgical element. So it would be said like in a congregation uh, during a time of worship, the psalmist would lead the congregation. Maybe they'd be saying it all together. But the most important thing is the psalm is being read in community. So if we look at the psalm, we'll notice that the majority of it is in first-person plural. Look in verses 22 and 23. It says, Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever, but come to our help. So I want to share a story of what it looks like to live in community during suffering. Um, And Sam and Wendy uh, were gracious enough to let me share this story. Some of you know Sam and Wendy. Um, They faithfully serve this church and uh, they can often be seen running around chasing Luke and Noel, just two super high-energy boys, um, and something that probably my boy will come to grow into. But some of you may not know that Sam and Wendy actually had a son before Luke and Noel, and his name was Josiah. Uh, so last week, I got to sit down with Sam and Wendy and hear about Josiah's story. About uh, 13 years ago, in the spring of 2010, Josiah was born with a condition called emphalocele. And what emphalocele is, is you are born with your organs outside your body. Josiah never left the hospital from birth. Uh, He needed a ventilator to help him breathe, and he needed uh, food and nutrients pumped into his stomach. Sam and Wendy, for all intents and purposes, were living in the hospital, and they got to know the hospital staff very well because the hospital was like their second home. Uh, Sam and Wendy were also loved on by the church constantly throughout Josiah's life. The church was bringing them meals and consistently and constantly praying for them, checking up on them. And there were certainly moments of hope that Sam and Wendy talk about a lot. Uh, There were moments where it felt like Josiah would live a normal life. Um, he, He eventually became strong enough to breathe without the help of a ventilator at times. And his personality began to blossom when he turned one. He's, uh, Sam and Wendy uh, talk about how sweet he is. He's always smiling. 
So Christmas 2011, uh, Josiah was about a year and a half old, and he, he got to unwrap his presents. It was his second Christmas, and things felt normal. And then two days later, on December 27th, Sam and Wendy got a call from the hospital staff that Josiah's organs had begun to fail. The medical team went down the list of things to try to get Josiah back on track, but finally they came to the conclusion that they would have to go in and operate, that they would have to um, revive his organs and get them to be working the way they're supposed to. Josiah wasn't strong enough to be moved to the operating room, so the nurses and surgeons turned Josiah's room into the operating room. Right before the surgery began, Josiah's vitals began to give out, and the doctors and nurses brought Sam and Wendy in to say goodbye. I think one of the most striking things when I was talking to Sam and Wendy about their story was how thankful they are to their community throughout that entire process. God provided a community that rallied around Sam and Wendy that whole time, both the hospital staff and the church. And it's not just the community that gave to Sam and Wendy and Josiah, but actually on the flip side, Sam and Wendy talk about how Josiah gave to the community, that it was Josiah who was able to impact the people around him. I think a lot of us hear that story and we think that's a tragedy, that no one should have to live only one and a half years. But I think Sam and Wendy have a God-given perspective when they look at Josiah and they think that Josiah's one and a half years was more impactful and ministered to more people than a lot of Christians who live a full 70-year life. From an earthly perspective, yes, Josiah's death was a loss. But from a heavenly perspective, God used Josiah's death to bring about life change in the community around him. We're going to publish Sam and Wendy's story on the Quicksilver Spotify, and I'd strongly encourage you guys to listen to it. Because I just love that Sam and Wendy, through their story, are proclaiming victory over death. In the same way, when we read Psalm 44, we're hearing the Israelites' story of when they're crying out to God. So I think that our church needs to entrust our stories to each other, much in the way the Israelites entrusted their story to us. So I'll share the sharing prompt right now. Share a story of how you wrestled with God during a time of suffering. And you can mull that over uh, as we continue. But um, <clears throat> I have a, a slight side point, and part of me almost didn't want to include this, but I felt convicted to, to bring this up. I think one thing our church does really well is we have uh, really high levels of empathy. I think we do a great job of affirming each other and validating each other in times of suffering. I think it's the highest EQ or emotional intelligence church that I've ever been at. And that being said, I think that something I would love our church to grow in is that when we are in these deep valleys of suffering and after we are affirming and validating each other, do we also ask each other the tough questions? Do we ask each other, where do you place your hope? I'm reminded of Elihu in the story of Job. And if some of you remember, when Job was afflicted and everything was taken from him, and his friends told Job, perhaps there's something you're doing wrong. Perhaps God is disciplining you. And Job says, I've done nothing wrong. And he says this to God. He cries out to God in his final prayer. And he says, God, why are you doing this to me? Because I have done nothing wrong. 
Why do you remain silent? And Elihu, who we haven't heard of this whole time, but suddenly he pipes up, and he's this younger character who says, I really don't have much to say usually, but in this moment, I'm going to have to pipe up. And this is what he says in Job Job 36. He says, God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? Who has prescribed his ways for him? Or said to him, you have done wrong. Remember to extol his work, which people have praised in song. All humanity has seen it. Mortal gaze on it from afar. How great is God beyond our understanding. The number of his years is past finding out. So I would ask our church, are we imitating Elihu by commending each other to trust God in times of suffering? Are we saying to each other, not our will be done, but God's will be done? In Joshua 5, the Israelites are marching toward Jericho in their first battle. And as they get close, Joshua meets with an angel of the Lord. And Joshua asks to the, to the angel, whose side are you on? Are you on the Israelites' side or are you on the enemy's side? And the angel responds, neither. I am a commander of the Lord's armies. In other words, I'm with God. I'm not with you. I'm not with the enemy. And just, uh, Joshua falls to his face. Because I think Joshua realizes that he asked the wrong question. I think he realized he needed to ask, am I on God's side? I think that's the correct and the ultimate response to suffering. I think it's important to be honest with God and have an emotional response, but I also think that we can encourage each other and push each other on to fall prostrate before God and say, not our will, but your will be done. So I'll end with a personal story of uh, suffering that I had, a moment where I was wrestling with God. Uh, I was driving down 101 South a couple years ago, and I got a call from my brother. And he had just found out that his baby girl, who was in the womb, uh, had cleft lip. She would need surgery before she was eight months old to have a somewhat normal life, to be able to uh, eat and and talk. And so when I was with my brother on the phone, um, I wept with him and I prayed with him on the freeway. And the constant theme of my prayer as I was praying with my brother was when my niece was being knit in the womb, God, why did you look away? Where were you, God? And I think Jesus says something so similar in his moment of deepest agony. When he's on the cross and he's about to die, he's about to give his last breath. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he's actually quoting a psalm here. He's quoting Psalm 22, the first verse. And to think that of all people, Jesus knew the plan that the Father had set in place. Jesus knew that by his death, he would save many. And even with that knowledge, Jesus still gave way to his emotion. And he cried out, God, where are you? Because it's certain that you're not here. So when we cry out like that, when we, when we cry out, where are you, God? Jesus can say that I've been there. Jesus can say death took everything from me too. For three days, the grave held me down and I was so alone, but I did the impossible because death took me down and then I took death down and I did it for you. So I'm going to end by reading you my rewritten version of the end of Psalm 44. 
verses 23 to 26. And see if you can spot it. I actually took the liberty of adding a verse because the psalmist didn't get to see the fulfillment of God's promise quite like we do. We have to stand on the side of history that can look back and say, this is what the Messiah looks like. This is what God's redemption plan looks like. So here goes. I know you're there, God. Do something, please. Hold on to me tight. Carry me through these seas. I'm not going to make it without you. I look for you and I see nothing. You say you love me, but your plan feels soul-crushing. I'm not going to make it without you. I give up. I can't sink lower than this. I look up for light, but feel only dark abyss. I'm not going to make it without you. I can't save myself. You're my only boast. You promised you love us, so fulfill your oath. I'm not going to make it without you. Oh God, I see your outstretched arm and the holes in your hands. You rolled back that stone. Now death cannot stand. I'm going to make it. You came for me, and I'm with you. Father God, um, would you become so real to us in times of suffering? God, would you draw near to us? Would you engage with us when we engage with you? God, give us the strength to, uh, to live in community in times of suffering, to look to each other. God, we know that you gave us a community, you gave us the church so that we could experience suffering in life together. We praise you, God. Amen.